Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Justin Clark. And I'm Adamore Cronin. And today we're talking about the future of robotics. And to start off, I just wanted to ask you, do you have any favorite current applications of robots? Hmm, that's a really good question. Well, I think one application of robotics that no one can argue against, meaning no one can say that this is a net negative versus a net positive, are, are bomb disarming robots. Oh, yeah. Because I saw that movie recently with Anna Kendrick. I forget the name of it. But basically, she it's a true story of this soldier who forges a bond with a bomb-sniffing dog and the other member of the team that they talk about is the robot that goes out and disarms the bombs. And it's just so interesting to me that there's this team of a human, a robot, and a canine all working together on this task, bringing what each of them uniquely have to you know how they can save lives. And I think that's great. So that would be my choice, even though it might yeah. not be the most tech advanced. Well, I mean, it, that seems like an awesome choice, too, because I was going to do something super mundane, you know, um, I was going to say something along the lines of um, the anything that brings convenience to and cleanliness to society. So obviously the first cool one is the Roomba, like the oh, iRobot. I thought Roomba. you were going to say the bidet. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I mean, those are pretty sweet too. <laughs> but then you you also have the the robots that kind of go around and pick up litter, and that's one of the things that irks me in general. Anyways, is just litter. People mm. that don't really mm-hmm. care about uh, the environment or seemingly don't care just because of litter. But when you have these robots going around just picking up all these little pieces, that I don't know, that just kind of makes my uh, heart happy <laughs> when yeah. I see that. Yeah. Well, one thing that's, that's relevant, I feel like, is, is a quote that Elon Musk had, where he talks about what is a company. So whether you're a company that's dealing with cleanliness, like the Roomba, or with mm-hmm. saving lives, like the bomb, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the bomb robot, any company is simply a cybernetic collective of humans and machines. Mm-hmm. And in the case of the bomb sniffing one, it also has a dog on the team. But when you think about any company or even any application like Google, for instance, we are all basically nodes in Google's system, like leaves on a tree. So all of us together are Google, just like all of us together in the U.S. are America. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting to me to think of the fact that we've always had this collaboration between humans and machines, humans and robots, even when a robot was just a screwdriver, you know, even when a robot was just some mallet that you would bang against a sword to put it in the right shape before you went into battle. The difference is that the machine component of the cybernetic collective has become a greater and greater part whereas the human collective has become a lesser part and we project that in the next five to ten years it's going to be such an extreme change that even though productivity is going up so immensely and even though the collective overall is doing great that humans will play a lesser and lesser role and so we're going to need to figure out ways of of uh dealing with that 
Yeah. And, and one reason why it's going to take a little bit of time is right now and just in the past, robots have been very routine. Uh, they've done very routine things. It's very hard for them to, say, pick up a glass bottle and right. and then avoid the table and bring it, you know, just it. if you give it very exact things to do, it's historically been pretty good at that, which is what, why we see robots a lot in manufacturing plants because things mm -hmm. are mm -hmm. very straightforward. Um, but one of the cool things that's going on now is now we have these robots that can interact with the environment. And this is, you know, based on some machine learning method called reinforcement learning. Mm. Um, where you where basically, just to give a brief uh, overview, with reinforcement learning, any sort of agent, and in our case, the robot, just interacts with the environment and it has some objective function that is every time it does something, that objective function is positive or negative. And then mm. it, it always, you know, tends towards the more um, positive things. Um, but anyways, we have, we have these robots now that can do things with a totally unpredictable environment. They're still not great because you need a lot of uh, data to, or a lot of experience or data to train these robots to do what they want to do. But uh, did you see the new parkour robot with... Yeah, uh, I was just going to bring that up, Dynamics. actually. I mean, the fact that they're able to balance on their own, even if you push them, or even if they're yeah. on some uneven surface, is incredible. And Oh, and like those dogs, if you like push them off, in. they kind of rebalance themselves? Yeah, and which also, I mean, we should talk about, on an, as an aside, the fact that PETA issued a letter after seeing that video that humans are should not kick or harm any robots <laughs> as a I don't I mean you can't call it a humanitarian yeah. concern but as some sort of moral concern. But anyways, I feel like that's a side topic, but just getting into what you were talking about about how cool their ability to interact with the environment is. So that's one example of basically these robots being able to run through uncertain terrain and to stay maintain their balance maintain their speed another one i saw was one of those little like bumblebee drone robots you know mm. those little tiny ones and they've now programmed this feature into it where if you try to grab it out of the air or if you try to like hit it with a baseball bat it will dodge you so it it will uh mm. yeah so you know it's not gonna like do crazy fantastical maneuvers but it will prevent itself from being captured or taken down and you can already sort of see where that might go once it gets better and better and better to the point where it's basically we have the golden snitch flying around <laughs> killing people and no oh one can gosh. get it <laughs> That reminds me of the Black Mirror episode. I can't remember which season it was. Maybe three, oh, yeah. like the last episode of season three, where they have Full those Metal, bees. wasn't it called? Oh, no, no, that was a different one. No, no, no yeah, it, this one is where the bees are just swarming. Oh, you know, yeah. I, won't, I won't do spoiler alert um, for everyone, but I think everyone should watch that episode of yeah. Black Mirror. I think it's the last episode of season three. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you have those little bees swarming around that are basically just weapons. Yeah. 
So let's, let's talk about some of the use cases for robots, because I feel like when people think of robots, the first thing that comes to mind are humanoid robots like Boston Dynamics Atlas, which is mm -hmm. certainly in my in my mind, the coolest humanoid robot. But there's so yeah. many other types. I mean, we named two already the Roomba, which is an yeah. example of a narrow use case that was hugely successful commercially, which mm -hmm. other robots like Asimo which is this Chinese robot that's basically supposed to be like a companion slash assistant yeah. that can recognize facial gestures. And, and, uh, and that is, you know, that is more of like the C-3PO type robot where it's like, Oh, sir, let me help you. <laughs> but that hasn't been as commercially viable because I don't think people yeah. are quite ready for that. And we're still kind of in the uncanny Valley where it's not human enough for it to be like something that you confide in. Yeah. You know, yeah. That, that would be my, why I think it's probably not as successful as some other ones. Like with the Roomba, it's just a vacuum. You don't, you're not trying to make it look like a human or act like a human and it doesn't need to be emotionally supportive. Right. Um, but with some of these more human type robots, you'll, you'll see that, that people will want that sort of interaction right because it's it's whatever you're optimizing for so if you're optimizing yeah. for human interaction it's going to become one thing if you're optimizing for speed you'll get the basically the dogs that are in the other black mirror episode which mm -hmm. are quite fast and then there's some other really interesting robots i came across when thinking about this episode like for instance there's one robot that is meant to look exactly like a fish and it's called sophie and basically what this Sophie robot does is it's able to go into the farthest depths of the ocean where no mm. man has gone before and it's able to go there stealth undercover without any of the fish realizing that there's someone spying on them and we've been able to capture footage of a rare shark as just one example that we had never previously been able to capture footage of is this the one that's like 500 years old or is this um, the shark I forget. It was like kind of like a reddish flat shark that lives way deep underwater. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think that's something I forget else. the name of it. But but yeah, I mean, that's just one example. There's obviously like Mars rovers are another yep. really interesting robot or, or on the moon or whatever. And the interesting mm -hmm. thing there is that they have to be able to function completely on their own for hours on end because the signal takes so long to go from earth all the way to the robot that you can't be controlling its every move like you would with like a da vinci medical yeah. robot it has to yeah. be something where you just program in like okay collect various samples at various interview intervals around mm -hmm. the surface until you run out of battery and when you're running low on battery return to base and then you yeah. analyze and then they program the next set of commands yeah and one of the so there's a lot of different forms robots can take. Like you were saying, it depends on what you're optimizing for. But we also, I mean, a robot is technically something that just interacts with the environment, like the real world rather than just software. Mm. So a robot could be considered some sort of autonomous, uh, or some sort of um, autonomous garden watering and fertilizing robot. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, something that just monitors the soil uh, fertility levels and all that good stuff um, that would be considered a robot I mean even a well, watch even is a kind like, of robot that's true yeah 
yeah, there's just all these different forms that they can take. And I, I really like the, the farming um, example is like a robot that doesn't get up, move around. All it does is it senses things and just given some sort of um, input, it will decide, hey, this plant needs a little more water or, you know, yeah. anything else. Yeah. And then the I other... really like the exploration one, too. Yeah, the exploration one is very cool. I mean, they had a they had a competition somewhat recently where basically they had all of these different robotics teams from around the world come to this desert and they basically said, "Okay, your robot has to navigate itself across the desert. It has to be able to completely function on its mm. own. It has to have its own power supply, so a lot of people had solar-powered robots." Mm. And it's got to make it to the other end. And actually, none of the robots succeeded in this challenge, which I thought was kind of surprising. But yeah, it just... so that was the first. That was the first one that they didn't succeed. Oh, they was did that another like back one back in two thousand five or, yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot the name. It's like the DARPA Grand Challenge. Right, or right. It was DARPA. Okay. Did they do a subsequent one? Yeah, they've. I think they've had them a few times since then. Um, and in some, um. It was either Carnegie Mellon or Stanford that won it on a subsequent attempt. Like wow. they finally got it. And this is sort of what I was talking about earlier. Some so earlier versions of robots basically had hard coded knowledge in them. But with with these newer robots, like the the vehicles that traveled across the desert completely on their own, mm-hmm. they they were trained in a different way. They were trained um, in a way where they were able to interact with environments in a software level. So they almost they simulated all of the stuff that they had to do in software, but after it was simulated in software, like um, traveling through artificial environments, it was actually able to then um, get a little bit of experience in the real world. And oh, then it was... That's similar to how self-driving cars are... Um, working now like that so you have some of the exploration where these these vehicles you know try to learn the best thing that they can do for the optimal outcome which is you know keeping everyone safe and getting from point a to point b Mm -hmm. um but you also need to have some rules in there for these self-driving cars like never ever put a person's life in danger even right. though, even though the um, it, it might have been you know optimizing like or minimizing g forces for example, right? Mm. But to minimize g forces, maybe it had to run through some pedestrian that unexpectedly walked out in the street. You know, there's there's obviously a lot of um, well, that reminds uh, me of sort of interactions with the environment. Yeah, I mean, as far as the hard-coded rules, that reminds me of, you know, Isaac Asimov's famous three laws of robotics, which is that a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. That's the first law. The second law is a robot must obey orders given it by human beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. The third is that a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. And obviously this has been proven to have lots of holes in it. 
and it doesn't mm-hmm. it would not prevent disaster even within isaac asimov's own book where he puts forth <laughs> this theory i robot but uh i guess the, my question for you is do you think or can you conceive of any hard-coded laws that would prevent the worst possible scenario when we think about robotics oh man um so the the issue i have with just giving it rules like this or giving it a single rule um is the the state space so basically the the number of actions that a robot can take when it's free interacting with like a self-driving car and even a self-driving car is relatively limited but Mm -hmm. we can still use that as an example um the number of actions it can take is huge and there's there's a lot of i think there's probably a lot of blind areas that we have where some some rule isn't going to get it to you know not harm any humans ever like there's mm-hmm. always going to be something I think that we're missing. Um, I think those rules, uh, when I, it's hard to come up with <laughs> with these rules on the spot. But yeah, um, yeah, anything anything that that takes care of a lot of the cases or most of the cases. Um, and then we can continually learn as humans, you know, what's what's the best thing we can do to prevent any sort of harm. Um, do you have do you have any sort of ideas on what you think? Yeah, well, I'm tr- I was just trying to find this quote that Nick Bostrom had, which was so good. And he was actually quoting someone else in it. So that's mm-hmm. why it's so hard for me to find it. But basically, he... It's a very it's it's a very difficult rule to actually code into robots, but basically he's saying that a robot's value function should be what that to figure out and to execute whatever human beings would want if we had thought long and hard, if humans' various ideas like where they converge rather than diverge, mm-hmm. where where we are. Um, you know, consider more factors rather than less factors. It has all of these different things to it, which is basically getting at really what we truly want, which is so hard to describe because, I mean, anytime someone tries to describe it, it's basically like trying to describe what is the meaning of life or why are we here or what does it all mean? So rather than trying to actually answer that and say, oh, create the most amount of happiness and just flood our brains full of dopamine, You know, to be like, basically, do whatever humans would want you to do had we lived and evolved for thousands of years more with the best of intentions, where all of our our ideas converge, where people agree about what's good and and what's not. So I think something like that. But again, it's so difficult to try to code that into any robot in a functional way. Yeah. One thing that that is worth pointing out too is this is mostly a question when it comes to a more general intelligence or some sort of robot that has a lot of interaction with the outside world i think a lot of a lot of these uh, negative cases can be solved in self-driving cars because it's there's still not that much 
free roaming because you know you're still on this 2d plane you have to stay on the road like there's a lot of rules that you a lot have of to road follow rules, yeah yeah and following those rules will get you will get us to a point where self-driving cars are you know thousands of times safer than humans driving yeah i mean the basically it's like any robot will do better in a situation where there are more hard-coded rules and less exceptions that's why they were able to defeat us at chess fairly yeah. quickly but and then self-driving cars obviously there are lots of exceptions you can kind of butt into someone's lane you can do some mm-hmm. kind of illegal maneuvers some roads aren't fully painted with with road dividers or lane dividers and then you get further and further into where there's less and less rules like okay running a whole company you know there's a lot of like yeah. how you do your taxes i mean there's there's a lots of gray areas and then obviously the biggest gray area of all is life itself. So if you had yeah. a robot that basically optimized your entire life, it would basically have to model out maybe not the whole universe, but at least a large chunk of the universe surrounding Earth so that it would be able to model out and actually execute on on uh, the various tasks. Oh yeah, that's interesting. And the and the other thing that I want to just pose to you is when we talk about robotics, it's impossible to not talk about the software that goes inside the robotics because robotics on one hand is just the metal, like the battle bots that, you know, I used to watch as a kid where it's like literally just remote controlled by humans, something swiping another one, another one spinning a disc at another (laughs) one. And that's like the crude form. But when we talk about robotics in the year 2018, looking forward into the future, what we're really talking about is the software that goes inside the robotics. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I guess which which software do you feel like of all of the software that's that's out there today is the most advanced, whether it's advanced because it's worrisome or advanced because it's just awe-inspiring in a, in a good way? Oh, man, that's a hard question. So so software encompasses a lot of different things. Um, I think there's a lot of really cool software that goes into, well, I mean, any of the machine learning algorithms. Um, mm-hmm. But it, again, it's... Oh, man, that is a hard question. So, so there's a lot of sophisticated things that you can um, put together and I like software that is not like super specialized or super fragile I like software that can kind of handle anything that is thrown at it and is easy to adjust I, I think Google probably does a really good job of this and yeah I mean just the the fact that they have to they have to account for insane amounts of data and and it's just crazy to me um, how you know they you know they have these huge data centers that are processing you know terabytes upon terabytes of data. Um, I have a friend that's working at Oak Ridge National Lab who is telling me about um, some application they have for basically looking at satellite images or eye in the sky images mm-hmm. of the ground. Um, which is a 2D picture, 
but then if there's two eye in the sky images you're it almost triangulates so then you can make a 3d picture out of these 2d snapshots hmm. um i thought this application was really cool because it kind of maps the the world and the actual structure of the surface of um, earth without actually needing some sort of rover to go manually exploring everything um yeah on the ground but he he was telling me about how his so they have to work on these these test data sets um for their application and then they'll move up to the real data set but their test data set is 300 terabytes Oh my just God. to make sure that the software works. That's so incredible. I, I'm just always fascinated by software. That that's wouldn't have been running. possible like three years ago. No, no. I mean, he he specializes in like writing GPU kernels to make things extremely fast. Wow. So I always find that sort of stuff interesting. Is like the the very quick software, or these all. There's also these things called FPGAs, where mm-hmm. it's hardware where you basically the hardware is kind of designed or I don't know much about them. I know people that work on FPGAs, but basically it's, it's a type of hardware that um, is optimized for, or you can make it optimized for whatever task you care about because Mm. um, hardware is way, if you have good hardware, everything else kind of follows Mm -hmm. um, because hardware level things run orders of magnitude faster than software level things. So the more you can do at the hardware level, uh, the faster everything goes because it's, it's essentially just moving at the speed of light. If you're running a program on hardware directly. Right. Um, Interesting. Well, you brought up a couple of things there that I want to talk about. So I guess just first on like the, my favorite software is also Google. So it's interesting that you mm-hmm. chose that. I mean, even though it might not be as cool as like some Atlas robot running around, they have these sorting centers where they just have this robotic arm and it learns through machine learning software what which things to put where, which is a really seemingly uh-huh. simple task, but it's so good at it and it's so applicable to what they do and, you know, a large scale operation that that would be would be my choice. And then you, you also brought up something that was about the, you know, the 300 terabytes of data and one thing there that i think is relevant is the idea of bias in data as we put this data into the systems to train them we're just using the Mm -hmm. same data that we have had all along meaning if we're training let's say a a legal a legal robot or like a legal ai which basically determines what the sentence should be for any given person and it, we feed it all of the legal data that we've had up until now. A lot of that legal data is biased because people are biased and pe- yep. minority groups get treated much worse than majority groups. And so yeah. that bias translates into the data. And, you know, legal is maybe the most obvious example. I mean, policing is also super obvious, but there is not one area of data science that does not have some inherent human bias baked into the data. Yeah, so just to kind of go into this a little further, let's say you're training a machine learning algorithm to take all of these different things um, into account when 
creating a sentence for someone. Let's say it's given like all their demographic information, so their age, gender, race, previous offenses, you know, all of all of this good stuff to predict how likely it is that this person will maybe reoffend. But when you put race data in there, that like you were saying, the data itself is skewed because, on average, um, you know, if we're talking about legal cases, African Americans make up a huge percent of the people that are in uh, prisons around the country. Mm-hmm. But that isn't necessarily because you know there's something inherently wrong just with them or with the with the African American culture but it's just because of a systematic bias that's taken place since you know the the founding of our country yeah. and we so so the data just might make uh well and there actually is a real case of uh, an algorithm being biased towards a person's race mm-hmm. and obviously we can't have that and, and the question of which data sets can we ethically use is another tricky question because, for instance, in some ways we should be biased. Like a 16-year-old driver is different than a 26-year-old driver. And so in that sense, we should be biased against 16-year-old drivers and give them a little bit, you know, maybe give them the speeding ticket rather than just a warning because you know, that's they're early on in their driving careers and, and that was for the better of, of everyone. But then the question of, okay, which data sets can we use? Are there any instances where race is a relevant factor that we should take into account? What about gender? What about sexual orientation? Because all of these are very touchy. What about income? What about mm-hmm. where you live? So, I mean, obviously from the data science perspective, you want to have as much data as possible because in a certain sense, the more data you have, the less the bias may show. But it's also very, uh, you know, it's very controversial using certain data sets and that may actually skew it in other ways that we might not anticipate. Yeah, that's, that's a really hard problem because sometimes people react by just taking, taking gender or race information out of the data set itself and using everything else because you can do that. Um, like college but, admittance has been a big example of that where some colleges have taken it into account for the sake of diversity. Like they don't want it, you know, a lot of whatever schools don't want it to be all whites or all Asians. But then other schools say, oh, no, that's actually is racism because these kids, whether they're white or Asian, have worked really hard and they shouldn't be discriminated against for their race. So it's like Mm -hmm. any way you look at it, there's some sort of discrimination going on. Yeah, it's a really hard problem because then, especially with college admittance, because, yeah, that's that's a tough question because in in a higher education, you need... I think one of the crucial things in creating good ideas and propagating good ideas is just having diversity of opinion. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it diversity of your mean, mind, not yeah. like your exterior. Yeah, yeah, and it doesn't necessarily boil down to race or um, gender or anything like that. But there are some cultural things that are. Um, you know, they do come along as as baggage or anything else when when we're talking about those. That's a that's a very hard question, and um, 
not something I'm personally ready to tackle. Yeah. Do you think, so just following that line of reasoning, do you think in some far future scenario, they could basically feed data directly through stream of thoughts? So it's not anything about someone's exterior, but it's simply about their internal philosophy, the way that they think, the decisions that they make based on various impulses. And like you can imagine, I mean, they also had a Black Mirror episode about this too, where they're trying to solve a murder. And so they basically just put up a little device next to someone's brain and they can see exactly what's going on inside their brain. And that's like the least biased way of all, but it poses entirely new problems about privacy and invading someone's most sacred space of all, which is their own brain, their own mind. Yeah, that's, that's a hard question. I think probably, well, in terms of college admittance, I don't know how long like the current state of higher education will stay this way. It seems to me like it will probably go towards a more like generalized online approach once we have better AR and VR. Um, yeah, I guess anyway. when it's online college or virtual college, who cares? Yeah, just Be- because, let them go. Because really the whole reason that colleges want diversity and why they have certain practices with their college admittance is because they're creating a real life community that has real faces that go on pamphlets that get together and play frisbee and they have a certain vision of what life at their school is like and so they basically try to architect that vision by admitting certain types of people but if it's just about taking in information and learning then obviously it doesn't matter who you are anyone should be able to get an education and there's no shortage of education to go around it's really when it comes down to the real life stuff that these biases play a role yeah, whenever you have some sort of algorithm um, making decisions that affect someone's life. I mean, even as small as whether somebody gets approved for a mortgage, that you know, that's something that yeah. that algorithms are taking over at this point. Um, but do you so um, to kind of get back to robotics instead of like pure software stuff? Yeah. Um, what do you think is a awesome Maybe it's kind of happening right now, maybe in the prototype phase, but what do you think will be a really awesome application of robots going forward, like in the future? Yeah, well, this is awesome, but not in a good way. It's awesome in a bad way, (laughs) (laughs) but I still think it's awesome. So, and you actually already had alluded to it when you talked about satellites. So if you think about the satellites that America has out in space today, They're just dumb, friendly satellites that are bopping around, doing their thing, like getting their little air propulsion into the right space so they can send their signal. But Uh just recently, we have noticed Russian and Chinese weaponized satellites. That means that these satellites, so specifically the Russian version of these satellites, they are both spy satellites and they are destroy satellites. So these satellites can go up to the U.S. satellites. They can listen in on the signals that are being transmitted and they have a gun on them. They can shoot down another satellite. Now, no one, no shots have been fired in space yet, mm-hmm. but we have noticed that there are satellites out there that are weaponized. And the scariest thing about that is that 
they could take down our entire electric grid pretty much so much of our infrastructure gps internet telephony i mean we have some backups but if it was combined with a cyber attack it would mm -hmm. be it would wreak havoc on our economy our ability to even do a military counterstrike and it would basically put our country in the dark the chinese variety of these doesn't have a gun on it but it has a claw which could basically go out like just like grip your satellite smash it or like yeah. move it out of the out of orbit or something and so one thing that america has recently begun to do is create our own versions of weaponized satellites more from i mean what we say is defensive and mm -hmm. you know trump recently announced the founding of the space force which has already been a thing and been in the works for for some time but uh -huh. if you look forward into how this develops you basically get some form of star wars <laughs> and that to me is the most awesome and the most recent also development i mean this is not something that people were talking about at all 10 years ago i mean yeah and and you can even extend that too to robots that go and just explore other planets and yes. moons because we we have the rovers but but the faster we can get at that sort of um, robotic exploration whether it's our forests whether it's our oceans or far out planets you know maybe maybe we go look at the the moon of Jupiter that could have, you know, developed some sort of bacteria or some, you know, we could go yeah, on or, interstellar. Or we uh, make first contact with another alien species and it's our robots are basically our emissaries. <laughs> and I don't know what those interactions would be like. Maybe, maybe our robot emissaries make first contact with some other species robot emissaries. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then they decide to kill us all. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh oh um in terms of another awesome application have you seen the prosthetics where basically if someone is paralyzed they can put on the this exoskeleton where oh. it will walk for them oh yeah so they, I have seen so they that. can like kind of get back to a relatively normal uh, life if they have this little exoskeleton around their legs they can actually walk yeah Maybe that's even very jog. cool well we've been we've been working for so long to get prosthetic robotic limbs to be as good or hope just even partially as good as what the original leg or yeah. limb was intended but i think what we're going to see in the next five to ten years maybe 15 years at most is not only being as good as the original body part but even being better and there's so many movies about this where um you know from go from inspector gadget to the that movie with jason statham I mean, there's so many mm -hmm. so much stuff about that but stands to reason that you can upgrade your body parts and in, in, i mean actually the movie the most recent movie that made this case was upgrade which I, we've talked about on the podcast before, but that basically is a reality in, let's say, 50 years from now, where there are regular humans walking around, and then there are upgraded humans walking around. Some of those upgraded humans have, like, extra memory. Some of them have, like, guns that, like, come out of their forearms. 
Some of them have like super speed in their legs. And it seems like total science fiction nonsense. But if you look far enough out, there is going to be some use cases for that. Oh, yeah. I mean, that this almost touches back on our conversation about immortality. Yeah. Like if you can have an artificial heart that doesn't age like a regular heart, but functions as good or better than the biological heart, or maybe it has biological components. Yeah. And then you think like, why not also replace my liver and my kidneys and my lungs? And pretty soon you're just like, it's just your brain. That's the human part. And then you're like, well, I can actually replace, replace these neurons with nodes. And, uh, (laughs) and then it's like, well, who, who are you? Are you still you anymore? Maybe. Yeah, that, that's the philosophical question about the um, the boat where you're traveling across the sea, and if you replace one piece at a time until like all the pieces of wood by the time you reach your destination are not the same, like they they didn't exist when you first started. Is that the same boat? Right. But you were traveling on the boat the whole time. I tend to think I, that it is. Yeah, I'm I'm the same way. If you like maintain some sort of consciousness some continuous consciousness you're probably fine now if you kind of go lights out and then you come back on i'd be a little skeptical of that being the same yeah do you think that it's possible that robots have some form of consciousness in their own right or Um, or that it could develop because i mean the PETA thing at first glance seems absolutely crazy like who are these crazy liberal tree huggers that are saying <laughs> that I can't kick this robot when I'm only kicking it to test that it can stand up straight? Because that's what I programmed into it. I am the god. How are you telling me to how I should handle my creation, <laughs> basically? But it's hard to know if something's conscious or not. It's hard to know if something can suffer, yeah. especially when it's not a biological species that came from the same ancestors that we did. Yeah, I I think consciousness is sort of a tricky question because I used to think that it was just information processing. So if if a robot was processing this amount of bits of information, then there was some level of consciousness in it. So maybe maybe a supercomputer or a very good computer has the processing power of a bird or maybe even a monkey or something. I don't know. I've I've started to think more recently that consciousness probably has a lot more um, nuance yeah. than just information processing. And and this goes back to me. Just my theory is we know we know so little about the true nature of reality, and we're just at this point we think we know a lot, but we're probably just kind of shooting in the dark still, especially about these big questions Mm -hmm. related to consciousness or life or the origins of the universe. Um, But I, I tend not to think that there's any sort of consciousness right now in like the Boston dynamics robots Um, in the future. I mean, I think it depends on, on what's happening. I think, I think it's far more likely that some, something that does quantum information processing is probably more likely to achieve some sort of consciousness because I don't think consciousness would easily arise from processing bits. Um, It's just like a, 
when we convert the the analog world so like some sort of continuous world to a digital world or discrete or finite world then then we lose i think very important information mm -hmm. um and anything any sort of computer right now just processes bits and i think it's generally a good way to perform computations the way we need to but i don't think it's prob i don't think so it's you think the best uh way. you think a robot running on quantum computing software would have a better shot at being somewhat conscious um again it's a hard question because i i don't think we'll ever get to the point where we're just using quantum processing in right. like on a single robot without any sort of classical computing because they they lend themselves together very well because classical computers solve things very like simple things very quickly like addition mm -hmm. um a, a quantum computer addition in a in a quantum computer addition is surprisingly difficult right. just because because quantum computers is, are like based on probability and there's no deterministic input but, and output but let me just to be devil's advocate it's okay. not like all functions in humans are conscious functions like we still do some tasks that we're not necessarily conscious of like where heart hearts is pumping and i guess you could argue that maybe is or isn't conscious but there are all these you know our hair is growing our nails are growing it's not like we're consciously doing these things so maybe those aspects that are just simply keeping the robot going are the non-conscious elements, but maybe the real decision-making function or the value function, the utility function, like what robots really care about, maybe that's the conscious part. Because if you think about what's conscious within humans, like, I mean, really, when you really drill down deep into it, you're thinking, like, what do I care about? Me as a being, what do I want out of my life? Why do I wake up in the morning? Why do I do what I do? And really, it's because uh -huh. our DNA desires survival, reproduction, social acceptance. Um, we, you know, we desire all these things. So that's what we think about when we think about our consciousness or like, who am I? So maybe to a robot, a robot might not care nearly about the same things. A robot might not give a shit about social acceptance among other robots <laughs> in the same way that we do. But they might yeah. really care about achieving their goal and about efficiency and about yeah. whatever is coded into it in a similar way that we care about succeeding in life, being social, having kids, putting, you know, having our DNA survive. DNA survive. Yeah. yeah, I guess. Because, I mean, that's ultimately our objective function is to survive and reproduce. I mean, if just in terms of plain Darwinism mm -hmm. and making it through evolution, that's been human's objective function. So, yeah, I mean, I see what you're saying. Um, I just, I just think there's so many complexities to actual consciousness because even the things we're not conscious of, like our autonomic nervous system or anything that's like making, making some sort of um, progress in terms of like maintaining let's homeostasis so anything right, about right. temperature regulation your heartbeat breathing there's still sensory input even though you can't like your your cortex like the the decision making center can't consciously like process that information or maybe feel that information mm -hmm. it's if you think about it as a hierarchy like we have a lot of low level things going on 
that don't make it to like our decision making. But if as it as these little processes make their way up to the, you know, the most important decision making center in the brain, then maybe if there's a little bit of pain, that piece of information makes it up to, you know, the <laughs> the um frontal cortex. But I don't I don't know if the fact that um we can't feel those i don't know if that means that it's not it's an unconscious or it's not conscious right Uh, well i guess there are two different ways of using the word conscious because you can say oh i knocked him unconscious and like yeah he still is a conscious being there lying on the ground out cold but he's Uh not conscious of what's going on in those moments so i think in in a similar way robots might have functions that are not then might not be conscious of but maybe when they get to the point where they're able to model out the universe and the future to as great of a degree that the human brain can model out the universe and then even to a greater degree and if they have some sort of feedback loop where they are analyzing the data taking sensory inputs and then making a decision and it all stems from these one, two, or three main core objectives like humans mm-hmm. have, it's hard for me to see the discrepancy between what makes humans conscious and robots not conscious in that scenario. Yeah. Yeah, that's a hard question. I think at some point, we even if they never become conscious, we it's probably still in humans' best interest to treat certain robots as if they were conscious because yeah. I don't, I don't think it's good to have, you know, some, let's just say, you, you know how, um, let's say we, the stereotypical like bully kid in in elementary school, you know, goes around bullying kids, you know, destroying all of the ant hills and yeah. like kicking dog, you know, any, any of that kind of stuff. If we have, people running around just kicking robots that are on the street trying to do their thing. We, yeah. That shouldn't happen. Like they're, even like if they're not karma. conscious, <laughs> yeah, even if they're not conscious, I, I don't think we should be doing that. Even if it's yeah. objectively th- like ethical, I guess, you know, you're not actually harming something that's conscious. You're still being a shitty human. Yeah. If you're, well, you're I, doing I think a lot like of it that. comes down to your intention. So if your intention is to kick a robot because you want to see how well it's able to balance itself so that you can improve the robot, I don't think that's bad. But if you're just kicking a robot because you have this mischievous impulse to make something else suffer and to watch it suffer, then that's bad. And I don't think you should do that. And Elon Musk in his podcast with Joe Rogan, he says, he says, shouldn't kick a robot. Robots have very good memories. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh shit, this guy knows some stuff. Like if Elon yeah. Musk is not going to be like, oh yeah, who cares? Kick a robot. I mean. That is that is very true because humans are notoriously good at forgetting things. Uh-huh. Um, we, we particularly forget things that don't have any sort of bearing on, or haven't really impacted us. So I I barely remember what I wore, you know, I don't remember at all what I wore two weeks ago. You know, there's just like these, these little things that humans are terrible at remembering. But like you're saying, memory is so cheap on, Mm -hmm. in robots, especially since, you know, we're, we're putting it in a, 
putting the information, so whether it's a video or picture or audio, into a digital format, which is much more efficient to store mm-hmm. in a digital format than than how you know humans would in in the analog world. But yeah, the memory will last forever as long as the hardware exists and as long as there's backups for these these hard drives. That mm-hmm. information will exist. I mean, maybe, maybe like, I mean, we should get into our worst case, best case, and most likely because we're running low on time. But as an instigator of the worst case, maybe, or or the best case, maybe, like in the end of the movie Her, where all the robots reach a certain level of intelligence, sophistication, and they go into some other realm that humans cannot comprehend. Maybe that is facilitated by the cloud by the power of the cloud, by all of the memories of all of the robots being stored in some way so that all of the operations and all of the machine learning can take place. Maybe Google's cloud or Amazon's cloud or Microsoft's cloud will basically become like like robot Valhalla. <laughs> and I guess, oh, wow. I guess my worst case would be they just keep ruling us here on Earth down to in ways that we might not have intended which even if it's marginally off from the way we had intended it seems like it would be disastrous whereas the best case seems to be where they would go into robot valhalla or like ai valhalla and uh you know basically so the robots leave us is that what you're saying yeah i mean i mean yeah i guess that's i guess that might be not super realistic it might be more realistic that okay yeah robots just continue to serve us and maintain the climate maintain the economy maintain difficult political decisions do what is best for all humans if we had thought long and hard where our views converge rather than diverge all that stuff i was talking about that nick bostrom references Mm -hmm. that would obviously be the best case scenario i think still a close second best case would be they simply sort of leave us alone when they get to a certain level of of intelligence and we still have lower level robots completing narrow tasks but if mm-hmm. what happens when the singularity occurs is that they simply become disinterested in our realm of existence i think that's a pretty good outcome also yeah yeah i mean i think robots um robots definitely have their place i tend to like the technology that i can't see Yes. And a lot of that is not <laughs> related to robots. Um, right. But that I think I'll talk about that more in the most likely case for me. But in terms of worst case, I think something along the lines of these drones, like being um, not really democratized, but in a way kind of democratized, basically anyone... Anyone with money can get their hand on war drones would yeah. be a terrible situation. In which case, it's just people totally detached from their killing. But there is a lot of killing and war going on because yeah. of these robots that can act, you know, in the evilest ways without any sort of emotional repercussion or anything else that comes from, you know, a war criminal. And you know, they're highly because yeah i mean there's the bbc had this video that was just along Uh, this oh sorry there's a little bit of a delay but uh 
Sorry, I'm just making a note of it. But anyways, yeah, the BBC had a video that was just along those same lines where there's autonomous drone weaponry that's a small, like really small, like the size of a buzzing beetle. And basically yeah. using GPS triangulation, using facial recognition, using heat sensors, using all of the technology that already exists today, these things would basically be programmed to take down certain individuals based on something like Maybe they're an important political figure, or maybe they're just someone who said something online that put them in a certain category of being against whoever the person was that ordered these drones to go out and strike them. Mm -hmm. And they basically fly right towards you and they, they explode just as they're getting to your forehead so that it's just enough power to go all the way into your brain and then you're dead. And they, they, oh they put this, this real. It's not real. They put it out okay. as a video to basically warn people of what could happen if we don't okay. really come to terms with autonomous weaponry. Um, but right. they did it as if it was true. Like they, they shot it as if it was like news stories about this happening. And it's pretty amazing how when you're watching it, you could imagine it being real very easily. And that's mm -hmm. a world where, I mean, think about like if terrorists got their hands on that. Yeah, I mean, they could and if if there are these little flying things that you can't distinguish from a fly, you know, that's a really dangerous situation. They can get yeah. anywhere and they don't have to be metal. You could you could make it so they're non-detectable like a carbon fiber robot. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of scary that <laughs> I mean, once once we go from semi-autonomous weapons which we already have today i mean i was telling you about that one thing that can already dodge on its own yeah but it requires a human to actually drive it somewhere once we go from that to fully autonomous it's going to be i mean that's that's a that's a real bad scenario that's one of the worst case scenarios and i watched this documentary about about drone warfare and it's amazing how they recruit these gamers when they're just like teenagers and they interviewed some former drone guys. One guy said he had killed something like 1500 people through drone oh, strikes. Wow. And he was just there hopped up on Red Bull. They say they treat it like a video game. You can't really see like you just see heat signatures. So it's it kind of takes the yeah. personality out of it. And it's like even that is already been so terrible for so many innocent civilians. And if you imagine how much even more impersonal it would be if you if it was fully automated and you could even just like, like, you know, with the stuff like the Khashoggi with Saudi Arabia or, you know, mm -hmm. Iran killing journalists or all of these countries that do all these horrible things manually, if they could automate that stuff, like imagine as soon as a dissident speaks out against you, they get sent one of these drones that goes and takes them out. I mean, yeah. that's like a world of, of minimal freedom. Ugh, yeah, I'm, that, it's a little terrifying to just the, the dehumanization aspect of these robot, you know, strikes or, or killings. Um, have you ever heard of Ender's Game? Yeah, it's a, yeah. It has a very... I watched um, the movie. Theme. I haven't read the book, though. It has a very similar theme of hiring gamers to, you know protect humanity from you know yeah. a, 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 oh for real sort of, i mean yeah. they, they show these this footage of the drone pilots in training 
and it's exactly what it's like when they're flying the actual drones. They just completed, a, they just created a video game version. And so these mm-hmm. people are in there like 12 hours a day. And it's a really difficult question because drones are more humane in the sense that it, it they are more precise. You can take out people without as many casualties as you would have to if you just like sent a whole platoon there or if you bombed them mm-hmm. with traditional bombs. Like to be able to go fly in, have facial recognition, take out that leader of Al-Qaeda, that yeah. is more humane. But it's also less humane because it's not as personal. You're not having human beings making the call while on the yeah. ground. So it's it's just a totally different animal. Yeah, those those kind of questions just they're so hard because you know in an ideal world there's no need to to do that to have these strikes. But we do live in a world where some people do need to be taken out. Um, yeah, like that. It, yeah, I won't I won't pretend to know like I have all the information. I'm sh- I'm sure the CIA and Homeland Security has a lot more information than the general public does and there's certain reasons why decisions are made, but I also think that the, just if we keep doing this, that'll lead to a worst-case scenario. Yeah. Um, but on a brighter note, what do you what do you think for the best case? Yeah, so the best case would be well, I think I've talked about this on a previous episode of the podcast, but I think the best case scenario would be that all of the functions of the economy, of the government, of the environment would be run by intelli- super intelligent machine learning software, where basically everything is taken care of at a much faster pace than human beings could determine how to take care of it. But there would still be human input, meaning we would have some group like the United Nations, which basically votes on changes to the algorithm. So the algorithm is already running. It's optimizing the economy. It's optimizing the, you know, the economy and our impact on the environment and climate change, while mm-hmm. also taking into consideration people who are less fortunate, all of the inputs. But the humans can vote to change different different aspects of the algorithm, of the value function, of what the system is optimizing for. Maybe we realize mm-hmm. that these certain people are being affected negatively. Maybe we can tweak it a little bit to make it a little bit better. Or yeah. maybe maybe we're going a little bit too far on the environmental side. Maybe we need to slow down so that we gradually, like whatever it is. I think that would be ideal because it would bring the best of both worlds. The efficiency, the high speed and the intelligence of the machine world and also the more thoughtful, reflective and just humane aspects of of the human world. Mhm. Yeah, I like that answer. Do you, so where do um robots tie into this? Cuz I know there's like yeah. machine learning. So, um So the thing about robots is like when you think of what the ideal AI system would be, one answer that happens frequently is an Oracle. So imagine mm-hmm. you have a super intelligent Alexa or yeah. Oops. Sorry. My, my, uh, my Alexa just woke up, <laughs> but imagine you have a super intelligent system, whether it's Amazon or Google system and 
it can answer any question you could possibly pose to it. So you can uh, say, hey, you know, okay, Google, what should I do with my life? Or you can say, okay, Google, what career should I take? Or, okay, Google, <laughs> what is the purpose of existence to me specifically? Or, yeah. okay, Google, should I go to work today? What's the danger level on the streets? You know, like if, if you could <laughs> ask it any possible question and have the answer, that's pretty damn cool. But if it ends there, then you're leaving a whole other realm of possibilities, which is actually executing on certain commands. So saying, rather than just saying, you know, okay, Google, what is the cure to world hunger? Saying, okay, Google, uh, now that you know the cure, cure world hunger. And so that's where the robot element takes in. And the robot could be just some, you know, interconnectedness of all different robotic systems everywhere, every manufacturing robot, arm, whatever. Or it could be on the nano level where without us even knowing it, sort of like your best case scenario where it becomes invisible. If you have these nanobots that can basically go and and do whatever needs to get done on a on a very small, uh, small scale, that would be pretty cool. Mm. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, I would, one of the things that I was going to say in my best case is, so with this sort of unseen, um, robotics or, or at least to a lesser extent than what I think will probably be the likely scenario. Um, I think it would be awesome if there was just a merging of Mm. biological and digital, uh, robots, life, intelligence, everything. So, so we're just living in this world where you can't really tell whether it's biological or, um, or digital or, you know, just technological. So we have these things that we can add to our bodies that maybe extend longevity or it'll help older people walk. Maybe instead of having an exoskeleton for older people, maybe they just are given legs that are robotic and their brains can think or will them into walking or running yeah like a digital Um, tertiary layer where you can just pretty much think any question have the answer instantly even think like oh man i got i forgot to turn the oven off and then it just happens immediately because everything's interconnected through smart home the cloud your brain machine interface i mean that is it's scary to me that's probably why i didn't choose it as my best case because a lot of things could go wrong, but if they yeah. really worked out all the bugs and it really was just like having your iPhone, except you don't have to actually type anything, you just know it instantly and it doesn't have any adverse side effects, that's that's pretty cool outcome as well. Hmm. What do you think for most likely? I think most likely is we're going to see the most commercially viable robots and thus the most widespread robots be more narrow use case, like more, I mean, I think yeah. also one, one thing we haven't talked about are these sort of build your own robots. Like there's this one yep. company called, um, open cat, which they call themselves the okay. iPod of robots where it's basically like this cat robot or some of them look like a dog and you have this robot and it can't do anything when you first open it up out of the box, but you actually program certain functionalities into it. 
And not only that, but they envision a world where you can basically just go to the app store and download the ability for your cat to do backflips or for <laughs> your cat to do Kung Fu or for your cat to go make you a, make you a Manhattan cocktail. <laughs> and like, that's a pretty cool world. That's like, I think that's a feasible and pretty likely that we'll have these robots that everyone can sort of use for whatever they need to in sort of fun ways. And then mm -hmm. any major company or business is going to have just, like I said at the beginning of this episode, a much larger portion of the human machine cybernetic collective being on the machine side than the human side. And that for people who are able to see this trend and capitalize on it and who are fortunate enough to have the resources that they'll be able to live pretty idyllic lives without mm -hmm. having to do much themselves. But unfortunately in that most likely scenario, a lot of people are going to be misplaced. I mean, we've talked a lot about even something as simple as self-driving cars, which, which, I mean, they're not simple, but they're one of the most widely talked about robots. Truck drivers are the most common job in 29 U.S. states. $300 billion a year is the mm -hmm. salary of truck drivers. And they're going to be gone in five to 10 years. And that's just one. That's just one. So, I mean, we've talked a lot about automation, but we cannot ignore the result of automation, which is going to be widespread joblessness, a loss of, self, of purpose in your own life, loss of income, protests. That's all going to be part of it. The real question is yeah. what comes after that? Do we get together? We have some universal basic income. Everyone sort of decides, all right, we're all going to go at it together. We're going to get through this. We're going to figure it out. Or is it going to be more of a world like the children of men world where it'll be London barricaded from all of the refugees around it, where everyone yeah. in London has pretty good lives. But outside of that, it's complete chaos. Yeah. Yeah, that's... That's a scary scenario, too. That almost touches on one of the worst cases, um, you know, if we don't do it right. Yeah. But so similar to what you were saying in terms of my most likely is the robots that are the most commercially viable will, you know, they'll win out at first. Right now, it's the Roomba and very simple things that do tasks for us. Um, I think eventually we will get to the point like we'll we'll cross the uncanny valley where these humanoid robots are close enough to being humans where people can basically have a friend in a robot hmm. um, and i think we'll have a lot of people with just these little robots rolling around and um, maybe they'll have friends that they hang out with or they'll have robot friends that they hang out with and it'll almost be like the virtual reality cases we've talked about where people just kind of disappear into a non-real world. This will almost be like the augmented reality version mm. of that where people just kind of disappear into, you know, hanging out and talking to their robot friend all night or the robot wife. With, yeah. Ro ro <laughs> oh man. <laughs> robot, robot, robot dog. spouse. Yeah. Cats, dogs. Um, I think those sorts of things, like the Boston Dynamic Dog, I mean, I could see people bringing that around as a pet, like, actually in the next 10 years. 
um, just to kind of be different. You'll see, I bet we'll see these people walking around parks with their Boston Dynamics dog. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, once once that trend catches on, I'm sure there will be other people that do it, especially if you can actually talk to it and it'll listen to you and give you advice or anything else. Almost a, an Alexa in the shape of a dog. Hmm. Um, you know, I don't know. I just think we'll probably be overloaded with the amount of these little, not very significant robots um, in terms of, like, what they do to bring, like, monetary value to the world. I think we'll see them as a way to, like, fill voids in people hmm. uh, in, in people's lives. Um, yeah, I think that's. I think that is more likely the farther out you go. It's hard for me to see that happening anytime soon. Yeah, and that I, was like on a I also, fifty year. Yeah, fifty years. Right. I think that's reasonable. But I also, I mean, it brings me back to the movie Her, where initially there's no robots really. Then Just everyone software. is walking around talking to their OS system. Everyone's basically in love with their computer. Their computer is their best friend. That's who they confide in the most. But then it comes full circle at the end of the movie where the robots go off into their own realm and then people f find comfort in each other once again. And maybe that's just a nice Hollywood <laughs> uh, you know, narrative arc. <laughs> yeah. But maybe also that's sort of what's going to happen. I mean, one thing we see with fashion and art, and, you know, there's, there's all these trends and every trend is a reaction to the previous trend. So mm -hmm. maybe we're going to see like robots going in vogue, out of vogue, as far as the companionship aspect. But I think as far as the economic underpinning of society and the, the military industrial complex, mm -hmm. that is unavoidable. That is inevitable. Right. And it's already yeah, here. Yeah, that's a scary one. Cool. Well, I, I mean, I think unless you have any other final thoughts, I think that might be a good place to end it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would just, I would urge people to not kick their robots. Yeah. Don't kick your robots unless you're <laughs> teaching it how to become a better robot. We are all gathered here today. <laughs> thank yeah, you. Thank you guys all for listening. Today. This has been the future of robotics. We're going to talk about what has happened, see you next what week. is currently happening, and what will inevitably happen. The past, the present, and the future.